So there I was, three days into my study of Second Peter that I'd been doing for my daily Bible reading. I started reading a verse that I'd read plenty of times before, but this time when I read it, it hit differently. And as I was dwelling on it and trying to understand it, I said to myself, if I am understanding this verse correctly, it completely changes everything I had ever understood about the Christian life. Now, with an opening like that, I bet you're real curious to know what verse in the introduction of 2 Peter could possibly make me question everything I'd understood about my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I bet you're thinking the worst thing I could possibly do with a statement like that would be to move on to an introduction instead of just getting right into it. And to that I say... Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of their lives so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. Before getting on to the meat of this episode, I want to just thank all my supporters over on Patreon who give money every month to help support this channel, as well as just give me some really great encouragement. If you'd like to join them, you can find a link down in the show notes or just visit patreon.com slash onward in the faith. All right, so back to the edge of the cliff where I left you hanging. Let me read the passage in 2 Peter that I'm talking about. So this is in 2 Peter chapter 1, and it's going to start in verse 5, which says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely mind-blowing, am I right? Or maybe not. So you may have read that in the past and said, yeah, no big deal. These things are important in the Christian life. But what I started to zero in on was that word, that action word that is that we are supposed to do. Now, the word in the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the translation that I tend to study from, it's an updated version of the New American Standard Bible from the 90s. So that word in this is supply. In your faith, supply things like moral excellence, knowledge, things like that. In the English Standard Version, it says to supplement your faith. In the New Revised Standard Version, it says to support your faith. And in Ye Old King James, it says to add to your faith. So we've got supply, supplement, support, add. Different words, all translating the exact same Greek word. But all of them give this idea, if we, depending on how we're reading it and understanding it, it gives this idea that we are, like the King James says, adding something to our faith. We're adding something to our lives. We have to put in effort to be self-controlled, to have knowledge and things like that. Now, again, on its own, we might still be able to say, yeah, sure, why not? But where my my sticking point was, where I started having a, a crisis of, I don't know if faith is the right word, but a crisis of understanding or of interpretation is that 
as I was reading it, the thing that made me stop is when I asked myself, should I understand that is it is my efforts that are reflected in my amount of self-control, my efforts that are reflected in my amount of brotherly love. Are my efforts necessary? Do I have to be the one to be self-controlled? Do I have to be the one who is steadfast or godly? Do you see how that one word, depending on how we understand it, can really trip us up? Because God's word is divinely inspired, right? In, in the original recording, it was divinely inspired. So if Peter is the one who said that we need to add to our faith, that we're the ones who need to supplement, to support it, to supply our faith, then we need to ask ourselves, what is expected of me in order to do that? Especially because, as I said, everything else I'd always understood has been that it is God who grants these things to us. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in the life of a believer who has truly surrendered to Jesus Christ, who has trusted him to pay the price for their sins. In that eternal security, in that eternal promise that we have in our salvation, we gain the Holy Spirit in this life, and he is the one who sanctifies us, who grows us to be more like Jesus Christ, who is the one who supplies things like we see in, for example, Galatians. Because you remember Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit says in Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We look at these things that are the fruit of the Spirit and we say, okay, is the Holy Spirit the one who just grants that to me and I'm completely passive? Is the my growth in things like gentleness or self-control only possible through the Holy Spirit, but it's really my efforts that are going into it? What on earth is Peter talking about here? And so as I spent, honestly, about two days kind of wrestling through this to make sure that I had a truly accurate understanding of what God is saying through inspiring Peter to write this, I thought, as I finally came to a conclusion that it could be valuable for this channel, for my listeners or, or viewers, depending on how you consume this content, it could be valuable for you to walk through with me sort of a, a faster process of what I went through, just showing you kind of the big steps that I took that can, number one, help you understand this passage for yourself, but also to let you see how the things that I do on this channel are really just a result of what I typically do outside the channel and to just let you see what my process is as I am working through understanding God's word for myself so that I can hopefully be a blessing to all of you. So the first thing that I wanted to look at when I was trying to understand what it means for me to supply or me to add to my faith, all these things is I wanted to look at the very first thing that Peter says. So in this, I'm going to be working out of the Legacy Standard Bible, but what we're doing will basically translate across whatever translation of God's Word that you are using, as long as it's not something like the New Living Translation or even the message, which isn't a translation, as the author themselves would actually agree with. Uh, but something that is translated with the intention to try to be true to the original languages, Whatever you use should be fine for the sake of this video. So what I looked at, though, is Peter starts off by saying, now, for this very reason, 
Now, on my podcast and my blog, I have uh, something called What's the Therefore Therefore, where I say that the word therefore in the Bible is a very critical word that we often overlook because what it what therefore means is because of what I've just said, now do this or now understand this. So I'll have a link to those down in the show notes if you want to get a little uh, more into the nitty gritty of what that's all about. But when he says for this very reason, same idea, right? Because of something I just said, now here is this truth. So first thing to ask is for what very reason? What did you just say? What reasoning did you give to now start telling me to to supply my faith. So let's go ahead and dial it back all the way to verse two, which will give us a good run in to what Peter's talking about here. So this is, you know, still kind of part of his intro in his letter that he's writing, but even in things like introductions, still chock full of God's truth. So second Peter chapter one, verse two says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these. And again, here's another one of those transition statements saying by these, by what, by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, and here's where it starts to get critical. What is that very reason that he just gave us? Well, it's it's ultimately a culmination of everything he just said, that because God has granted to us everything that pertains in life and godliness, that he's done so through the full knowledge of Jesus Christ, who called us, and he called us by his own glory and excellence. So ultimately, because of our salvation and what we gain through salvation, which is namely, as we've talked about, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who grows us up into spiritual maturity. By these, he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. Again, not being gods ourselves or things like that, but taking part in holiness, taking part in righteousness and not living like the rest of the world, but living to serve Jesus Christ, taking part in things that we could not possibly do before salvation, right? Because even the best things that we did were like filthy rags. And then he contrasts taking part in the divine nature by pointing out that we have escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust or by evil desire. And so it's because of this reason, because through salvation, God has given us everything that we need to take part in that divine nature, to please him, to serve Jesus Christ, to live the lives that he has for us according to his will, according to his desires, not our own will, not our own desires, right? Because when, when God saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ, he didn't just save us to live a better life now, right? To be successful in life or things like that. He saved us to live a life that could be easygoing, that could be, by the world standards, successful. But he could also save us to a life filled with suffering, pain, and an early death, 
right? God saved us to live the life that he calls us to in this life. We have escaped the consequences and penalty of sin, and we have gained an eternal inheritance and eternal life in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is coming. And so because of all that, because we understand the reality of who God is and what he has saved us into, for this reason, applying all diligence. So not just lazily, not just casually, not just sitting back and kind of living your life and just kind of waiting to get excited about the things of God or waiting to start growing in maturity or waiting for whatever, but being diligent, right? Having an excitement, having an intentionality to your life. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, that seems like a long wind up to still hit a verse that still fills us with a lot of questions, but it doesn't because this is what I did. I rewound back to really verse one, but I looked and I said, okay, what truth has Peter laid out? What reality of the Christian life are we seeing? And we are seeing that everything that we have, everything that we are called to do is purely through God, that it is God who saved us. It is God who chose us. It is God who keeps us. And it's going to be God who grows us. So again, really confusing now, because with all that being true, with the, with the full-blown emphasis being on God, his goodness, his grace and mercy, on, on Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, supplying all of this that we have in salvation and in our sanctification, what do you want me to do, God? right? That, that's how I felt. Okay. If that's true, then how am I supposed to supply anything? I didn't supply anything to my salvation. I don't supply anything to the, the preservation that I have. What, what is expected of me? And so here's where step two in my study came in, because as you can see that single word, I refused to let go of. And so I had to say, okay, across four different Bible translations, all of which are good to look at, right? They are valuable to, to see how different translators have made different decisions. But across all, all four that we looked at, the Legacy Standard, which is the New American Standard, um, the English Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, and the King James, all of these are giving different words for the same original word. So the next logical step then is to say, okay, what word were these guys looking at that led them to saying, this is the best word. This is the best way to translate it. And what I found is that that word doesn't, doesn't transfer across to English very well at all. They, they, in their humanness, right in their fallibility, these translators, they did their best, but looking at the origins of the word is what really made me say, ah, there it is. That makes more sense. So what is this word? So if you were to grab something like a, a Greek to English dictionary or a Strong's or something like that, you would see that this word that the LSB says as supply in the Greek is epikorigasate or epikorigasate, which is an imperative or a, a command, right? It's an, an uh, insistent order of the word epikorigeo. Now, epikorigeo means or, or has its origins in the word chorus. You can hear it there, right? Epikorigeo. 
And now here is where things like Bible dictionaries and, and encyclopedias and stuff can really be valuable. Because what I then discovered as I started kind of digging into how the original audience would have understood the usage of this term is this is a term that would be for, for someone who was basically a supporter of a Greek chorus. Now, when I say chorus, don't think of like, you know, people lined up singing. A Greek chorus was in a way by modern standards, kind of like a theater troupe. It was a, a group of actors who would you know put on plays and they would have a patron who would provide for them so that they could focus on doing what they wanted to do. Because my understanding is that back then it wasn't like actors today where you get paid a whole bunch of money to, to put on you know a play or whatever. They just went out and they performed and maybe they would get money or maybe not. But in order to support themselves, you would have you know, benefactors, you would have people who would pay to support them so that they could do the thing that they were supposed to do, that they were meant to do, or, or at the very least what they really wanted to do. So again, trying to, to shrink down a long time that I spent digging into this word. The idea here is that when it tells us to supply these things, it doesn't mean for us to build them, to create them and then offer them up in our lives. Instead, we are meant to be supporters of things so that they can grow. We are meant to supplement them. We are meant to add to them. We don't, we aren't the ones who conjure them and then live them out. Instead, it's more like a garden. These things are meant to grow in our lives. These things are meant to be present in our lives. What did Peter talk about just a few verses earlier? That all that we need for life and godliness has been provided for us, right? We have it. And so having those things, they don't just sit there and grow on their own, but we don't put in the effort to force them to grow. It's not by our own goodness that we grow in these things, which is how I'd always understood things. But this word telling me that I need to supply them, I need to add things like self-control or godliness or brotherly kindness, that I need to somehow conjure them up from the depths of myself, from my own goodness, that wasn't tracking. If that's what God's calling me to, I am in so much trouble. But understanding that this supply means that we are fostering these things made a whole lot more sense because they are not by our own efforts. They are the fruit of the Spirit. The question isn't, can I be knowledgeable enough? Can I have moral excellence on my own? No, God's not telling me to figure those things out on my own. What he's telling me is that his divine power has granted me, has granted you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. God's divine power has granted us everything that we need for life and godliness. The question is, are we going to provide them what they need to flourish or are we going to starve them out? Am I going to supplement them with what is needed for them to grow? Or am I just going to kind of lay around and wait for God to basically put me in a headlock 
and forced me to grow in them on his own. So what does this look like practically? Practically speaking, this is a question of how you spend your time, how you spend your efforts, and what we expose ourselves to, what we surround ourselves with. For example, how do we supply for moral excellence? Because again, we are not the ones creating moral excellence. We are making the ground fertile, right? We are giving water. We are giving nutrients. We are giving moral excellence what it needs so that God can grow it up in us through the Holy Spirit. Well, one, that requires us to care about what is and is not moral, right? How do we know what is morally excellent and what is morally depraved? Well, we can look at the world that will tell us that morality is about not making people feel bad. It's about believing in this certain thing. It's about fighting for these certain causes. It's about being all accepting and not telling people no unless they are causing harm to others, right? That is morality in our world. But what does God's word tell us is moral, right? God is the one who sets the standard. God is not beholden to our standards. God does not, we, we can't sit there and say that God is a moral monster because he doesn't match up to our worldly, fallen, fleshly ideals of morality. We find moral excellence in who God is. And so the only way to grow in moral excellence is to understand what God says is moral and what is not. The best way to do that is through reading and understanding God's word. What does he say through things like the Old Testament laws, right? Especially the moral laws that he gave us. You know, you got the Ten Commandments, you have other things. What is the heart that God has behind these things? What is he pointing out in humanity that we would probably not understand fully or accurately on our own? Understanding morality through God's definition of it is going to grow us in moral excellence because we are going to desire the things that are above, right? We're going to desire the, the godly kind of morality, not earthly morality or at the very basic level, immorality, right? Because immorality is the opposite of morality. So the more that we understand what God desires, the more that we understand what God hates, we will be able to grow into those things because we're going to be able to say, my thinking, my actions line up or they don't. Likewise, knowledge. Knowledge in what? What kind of knowledge does God want us to grow in? There's something to be said about being good stewards of just whatever God gives us, right? Any amount of intelligence we have, any amount of gifting that he has grown us in from, you know, even conception on, you know, if you're skilled in math, it's probably good to grow in math knowledge and try to apply that to God's glory and things like that. But really, in the framework of this, right, because Peter doesn't define these, so we want to think, okay, what else does God's word tend to reveal about these things? Well, knowledge tends to be a knowledge of God, a knowledge of, of who he is in terms of salvation, a knowledge of who he is in terms of his attributes, you know, who he really is, not who we imagine him to be or who we want him to be, his will and things like that, right? This is the kind of knowledge that we are supposed to grow in. But how do we do it? 
to a degree, you could say by it's by our own efforts. But remember that the things of God are foolishness to unbelievers. It is only through the Holy Spirit that true knowledge, true understanding can be properly and accurately discerned. So if we want to grow in knowledge, absolutely, you need to read. You need to expose yourself to God's word. Expose yourself to people who talk about God's word, whether it's sermons, whether it's uh, teachings, whether it's uh, this weird guy on YouTube uh, with a ministry called Onward in the Faith, right? When you are exposing yourself to the things of God, you're going to grow in your knowledge of God, not just head knowledge, right? It's not a memorization of facts because anyone can memorize facts, but it's a, a love of the truth of God and a desire to apply that knowledge in your life. But you're only going to be able to supply that by giving the Holy Spirit essentially something to work with. You know, if you are constantly filling your mind with sports facts and trivia and and getting distracted by hobbies or just being so bogged down in work and things like that, and that that takes all of your focus and you're just like, I'm just too tired. I, you know, I, I want to relax. I don't want to listen to a sermon. I want to listen to, you know, this or that. You're going to be growing in a knowledge of something, but not what God has called you to grow in the knowledge of. There is certainly a place for relaxation, for rest, for enjoyment. But there needs to be a higher place where we are seeking to grow through the power of the Holy Spirit in knowledge of God through all the resources, especially today, that he's made available to us, right? We're not a peasant back in the 1500s with very finite access to a means of growing in knowledge of God. We've got an abundance of things to help us, and yet we're scared of them all. We don't take advantage of most any of them. Supply for your growth in knowledge by exposing yourself to things that God will use to help you grow in that knowledge in the first place. Now, likewise, how do we provide, how do we add to self-control in our lives? What do we do to foster it? Well, one, understanding morality, we're going to better understand what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. By growing in knowledge, we're going to be able to kind of self-examine ourselves more to understand what our weaknesses are, the ways that we may even try to justify sins in our lives and things like that. But we're going to start identifying and seeing all those areas in our life that we do not have self-control, that although we need to rely on God for every area of life, there are some that we are not immune to. Right. Some people, they struggle with anger. Some people, they're just fine. Some people struggle with laziness. Others are are fine. Right. Self-control is necessary for every area. But there are some where we very clearly need God to almost sometimes supernaturally intercede because we just lack self-control in a certain area. But how do we grow in that self-control? Well, it's going to demand things like a hatred of sin. Because the more that we understand sin, the more we understand how depraved we are, how much God hates sin, that sin's not just this, uh, these areas we mess up in, but literally a single sin was enough to condemn us to the lake of fire for eternity. The more we take sin seriously, the more we'll take self-control seriously. The more that we will, as Jesus said, pluck out our eye, cut off our hand, remove anything from our lives that draw us towards disobedience to God to serving and loving ourselves instead of serving and loving our God. But we can't provide for these things if we are just inundating ourselves 
in immorality and in sin and in fleshly living, fleshly desires, fleshly thinking, right? The more that we expose ourselves to the things of God through his word and even through his people who imperfect though we may be, we're all, you know, hopefully collectively seeking to honor God in the things we do. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses that can build one another up. And so the more that you are exposing yourself to the things of God, the more that the Holy Spirit is going to to isolate areas in your life that you need to grow in, the more that he is going to provide you understanding and how to combat them or even outright, you know, kill their existence in your life or for things that you can't avoid, that you're, he's going to provide you the means to have self-control to turn away, to turn them off, to set your mind on something else rather than dwelling on whatever your sinful temptation is. Now, how about perseverance? What does perseverance even mean? At its base, perseverance is to keep going despite whatever's happening. Right. It's to remain forward moving despite pressure on you, despite opposition. Right. To persevere is to run through the mud all of your life, not giving in, not saying it's too hard. I just want the easy road. And if I can't have the easy road, I'm not going to move at all. Right. So we are called to supply for our perseverance in this life because godly perseverance is ultimately Continuing to live for God, continuing to keep our mind on God, despite the world around us, despite how hopeless things can seem. You know, you read through the New Testament, the Gospels and uh, the epistles or the, the letters, and this is a common thread that we often see. So how do we think about what God's word reveals to us to help us better understand how to supply for our perseverance. Well, perseverance ultimately isn't saying in this moment, I'm just going to be strong. Perseverance is looking forward and saying that matters more. I want that thing. I am pushing on towards a prize. You know, you think of Paul's frequent use of athletic competitive type language, right? Athletes are going for a crown. They're going for the gold, if you will. So what are we moving towards? You know, we're, as Christians, we're not trying to earn something. We're not saying, as long as I persevere, God's going to reward me. You know, this is hard now, but God's got bigger things in mind for me. Yes, true. But we want to temper that with a biblical understanding of what forwardness we're looking forward to, what future we anticipate. Because the reality is that we don't just stay stay strong under pressure, under persecution, under doubt, under frustration. We don't stay strong under those things because in a few days, in a few weeks or months or even years, we're going to have this better reward. We're going to have this better life. Because again, look at the apostles. They persevered under constant persecution, under constant threat of death and really under death. You look at, at many Christians all throughout history, they persevered despite people saying, if you continue preaching the gospel, if you continue living this godly life, we are going to kill you. And those Christians said, okay. And they kept preaching the gospel and they kept living their lives and they died. They persevered. Why? Because they weren't looking at earthly gain. They weren't looking 
at at these these temporal things, right? These temporary things that are are here now and they're good now, but are ultimately going to fade away. They're going to rot. They were looking towards eternity. They had what's called an eternal perspective. They said, Jesus Christ has saved me. He has given me an eternal inheritance. I will rule and reign with him in his kingdom forever. I am a child of God. I am part of the, by, in, in New Testament uh, phrasing, I am part of the bride of Christ. My life is not mine. My life is hid in Christ. And we persevere because we know that if we live a year, if we live 80 more years in this life, it is a blip on the timeline of eternity. In 10,000 years, in 10 million years, when we have been with Jesus Christ in his perfect sin-free kingdom where he rules and reigns with his people, what is this life? If we are thinking like toddlers, you know, if, if you've ever had or seen, you know, a two-year-old or a four-year-old, there are things in their lives that are so important that they would die if they can't have. Ice cream, the toy that their sibling's playing with, uh, getting to stay up another five minutes. You know, toddlers, small kids, older kids, adults, me, you. We get so focused on the things that we are seeing now that we melt, we fall away. We have an absolute breakdown because things aren't going the way that we want them to. But we supply our ability to persevere. We supply our ability to have joy in spite of our circumstances, to say that joy and happiness are different things and that we don't need to be happy, but we need to rejoice in the Lord always. We supply for that when we have God's mindset, when we are looking forward to eternity, when we are saying, this life right now, I live for God. This life will have its joys. It will have its sorrows. It will have times where I can abound. It has times where I'll be broken down. But as Paul said, we will be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not saying that we are going to just be able to be strong and succeed, but that we can focus on eternity when things are going horribly for us, that we can focus on eternity when things are going amazingly for us. Because believe it or not, it is just as hard to honor God in wealth as it is in poverty, because both of them reveal where our mindset is. And so if you want to grow in this perseverance, if you want to supply it, it's not about conjuring up your own personal strength. It's not about finding a life coach, hanging motivational phrases on your wall. It's about knowing the truth of who you are, what God has called you to in this life, but especially in eternity. Looking forward and saying, no matter what happens, I know what's coming and nothing in this life can take it from me and nothing in this life is worth compromising who I am in Christ to have that now when I know what's waiting for me in eternity. Now, next, we have to supply for godliness. Now, what does godliness mean? Basically, again, basic sense, simple breakdown. I would encourage you to go study out the word yourself, as with all these words. But the basic idea of godliness is just godly living. There is an action there is a, a noticeable behavior attached to godliness. You know, you think of 
For example, think of someone who is godly in your life. How do you know? Well, they do this, they say this, I've experienced this with them, right? The marks of godliness in a person's life are seen through what they do, how they act, how they live. And so we need to supply the ability to live godly lives. Now, everything that we've talked about beforehand is obviously going to build towards that, right? When we're thinking eternally, when we are seeing sin in our lives and exercising self-control and, and all this stuff that we've talked about so far, that's going to contribute to a godly life. And that's the point is that we want to surround ourselves with not just good things, but we want to, to provide for a lifestyle that allows us to live godly lives. We want to supply for a life where we are reading our Bible, where we are taking prayer seriously and understanding what it is. We want to supply for a life where we can exercise godliness, you know, whether it's in the lives of unbelievers, whether it's in the life of, you know, the believers at our church, in our family, whatever it is. We want to constantly be nourishing God's desire, God's building of godliness in our lives. And so for you, for me, that can take on thousands of different ways to understand it. But ultimately, the primary goal of supplying for godliness, right, for providing for it, for watering it, for giving it the nutrients that it needs, is to understand what godliness is by seeing it in the lives of others, by understanding God's word, and then not fighting it. Ultimately, I mean, when, when you know the will of God, that's great. When you know what God desires for your life, awesome. But faith without works is dead. God expects action in our lives. So when you know what God wants you to do, when you, when you're so intimately familiar with who he is, with what his will is, when you're not driven by this emotional feeling of, well, I think God wants me to do this. I feel like God wants me to do this. But when you can say, I know God wants me to do this, not because of my personal experience, not because of my emotional feelings in this moment, I know God's will because I know God, then act. And then you're godly. Or in that moment, you will be living a godly life. You will have godliness. But godliness is always action. It's always something that can be noticed not by you and how you feel you're doing. It is something that others can look and say, they are godly. Unbelievers can look at you and say, they're godly. Believers can look at you and praise God for their work in your life because they see Jesus Christ pouring out of you. Next, we want to supply for brotherly kindness. Now, to be very clear, God does not call us to be nice people. God calls for us to be sinful people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ who are living alongside other sinful people also saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of brotherly kindness or brotherly affection, brotherly love, this is something we need to have, but I guarantee you very few Christians are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then suddenly they're like, man, I want to do all the things for God's people. We have so much selfishness in us that this seems like the most basic and almost seems like a throwaway thing. It's like, oh, you know, we've got godliness. We've got self-control. We've got knowledge of God. And, and I guess we should be kind to the brothers. 
But no, this is something that is critical to our lives. And it's something that I, I don't know if I want to say I struggle with it the most, but this has noticeably been the biggest way I've seen God grow me over the last decade or so since I stopped fighting God in my life and really surrendered to Jesus Christ, not for salvation, but for obedience. For I, I stopped choking out the Holy Spirit in my life and started living out or trying to live out by the grace of God, really what Peter is talking about here. So that idea of brotherly kindness and affection, though, if you go through the New Testament and every time you see talks of community, you know, the one another's bear one another's burdens, you know, weep at those who weep, things like that, it's hard. It is hard to not just be nice for a time, but to have your life, like the rest of this, so focused on God that you are constantly in the mode of loving your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Not just being a nice person, but oftentimes, despite being prickly, despite being unpleasant, despite being tired, despite, you know, if you're like me, despite saying, well, you know, I'm an introvert, so I can't talk to people. You know, I just, I'm just, you know, so lonely and isolated and socially awkward and things like that. I get it. But that does not negate the fact that God has called us to brotherly kindness, to brotherly love, to serving one another, to sacrificing ourselves for the sake of the brethren, just as much as he calls us to self-control to knowledge, to obeying his will. Now, how do we supply for that? The simplest way that I have found is saying, not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to get together for one-on-ones. I don't want to go to the group events, the Bible studies and things like that. I am so content to just hermit up, right? To just to just be here in my house where I'm comfortable, where things are normal, where I don't have to expend social energy, if you will. In my flesh, that's fine. I am so content with that. But that's my will. God desires that I love people, that I disciple people, that I pray with people, that I pray for people. And those are those times where I have to say, God, I don't want to reach out to that new person I don't want to to reach out and see how that hurting person is doing. You know, I don't want to invest in others. I don't want to get together with someone, but it's not my will. It's his. And it's not your will. It's God's will. And so the best way to grow in brotherly affection are to just say yes to God in areas where you know he desires you to interact with others, to sacrifice for others, to even give to others if you're able to, whether it's giving your skills, your talent, money, aid, whatever it is, even just giving kindness, even just giving your time. And along with that, and I don't know for for my own life, I don't know the kind of order of operations, but I've had to learn to say just yes to God, knowing where he wants me to act and not doing it out of guilt but saying, if this is what God wants for me, this must be the best thing. But with that, having a better understanding of who other Christians are in my life. Because a, another thing that I've had to learn in my own life, in Christianity in general, is how consumer-focused we are. Right? Like, I, I'm 
you know, I'm good hanging out with the the guy who's really fun, who I have similar interest to, who are in the same age range and things like that. Like those people are easier for me to reach out to. Now, again, being what you would call an introvert, I'm not really happy in any social situation necessarily, but it's easier for me to reach out to those people than people who are different from me, who are into sports, who are into you know, studying the stock market and things like that, who are older, who are younger. But what I've had to learn and what I'm still learning is to view people as God views them. What binds me to other Christians, what makes me have brotherly kindness, brotherly affection for others, isn't that they are deserving. It's not that I invest in them. I focus on them. I take time to hang out with them, to get together with them, to reach out to them because it benefits me or because I like it. Because that's that consumer mentality that we have, that things are only valuable in so far as they benefit us. But instead, what I've had to learn, and again, super emphasizing, I am still learning it, is that people are valuable in the church, in my life, because Jesus Christ has saved them. Now, all people are equally valuable because they've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in terms of those one another's, in terms of that family of God that I have, their value to me isn't based on what they provide for me. It's not based on how they make me feel. It's not how they respond to me. They are valuable. They deserve my love. They deserve my time, my intention. They deserve me getting outside of myself. And not being an extrovert, but being true to who I am, being the more reserved person I am, still reaching out because that's what God wants me to do. They are my family and I love them because God loves them. God doesn't love them because they deserve it. I don't love them because they deserve it. God loves them because it was his choice to love them. Likewise, I want to love them because it's God's choice to love them. So again, how we supply, how we grow in that love for the brethren is to have the knowledge of God, to understand him, to understand people, to understand what God says about how we live this life alongside others and being obedient, even when we don't feel like it, oftentimes, especially when we don't feel like it, but not using people as tools or things you know, if you're, if you're extroverted, you know, I focus a lot when I talk about this stuff on introverts, but you know, extroverts, I know you people tend to have more of a shallow relationship, you know, maybe a tendency towards just having a lot of acquaintances, but not having that really good intentional focus, you know, that might be where you need to love others more is not just, you know, having these drive-by conversations, but really having the self-control to the honor and glory of God to, you know, focus down and really get invested and involved with someone. You know your strengths, you know your weaknesses, but above all, you know what God calls us to. And the moment we say, I can't, is the moment we realize that there is something God is going to grow in us. We're all going to be unique. We're all going to be different. I'm never going to be the life of the party. I'm never going to be a social butterfly. But by the grace of God, I talk to people. I reach out. I go to social gatherings. It's not always comfortable. It's not always something I like to do. And if you're watching this and you've invited me to things, don't feel bad. It's to the glory of God. It grows me. 
But that's how I've had to grow. I've had to supply for brotherly kindness, for brotherly love, not by saying, I will do these things when I love them. But instead, God has called me to do these things and in doing them and in understanding God's will, I have grown in brotherly love. And then running alongside that is love. Now, again, Peter is not super clear on what he means by love here, but I think that coming right off of brotherly kindness, we've got brotherly love. And I'm not going to dwell on this too much because I kind of smooshed them up together just a little bit. But brotherly kindness would be, I think the best way to think of it is brotherly kindness is focusing on the needs of others, whereas love or brotherly love is just loving them as God loves them. So kindness is kind of our actions towards others, whereas love is our thoughts towards others, if that makes sense. Not don't get weird on me here. Not thoughts like, you know, I think good thoughts about them and ah, I've, I've, I've followed the will of God, but instead doing the one another's right. Living life, having actions towards them as brotherly kindness, but how we think, how we understand the, the why behind wh what we do, what we do with people. That is something that we need to supply for as well. And again, I kind of conflated them a little bit, but, uh, think about that, you know, supply kindness in terms of going out and doing the things supply for your love for the brothers by having a good biblical, godly understanding of who they are. And especially the closer you get to people, the, the more ugliness you see in their lives, the more broken you realize all of us are, the more you're going to be able to supply for that love, because you're going to say, am I going to think about them as God thinks about them? Or am I going to think about them how I want to think about them? So then as I kept reading, as Peter keeps talking, and as I want us to uh, just kind of end this with, is looking at the why of all this. Why, why should we care? What's the value of all this? You know, why, why go against what seems to feel natural to us? Why hurt? Why be frustrated? Why give up our time? Why sometimes even refocus everything in our lives to supply all these godly things in our lives? Well, Verse eight goes on and says, for if these things are yours and are increasing. So if, if all that we've talked about, if those are yours, which they are right, God has supplied them to us through our salvation in Jesus Christ. But if they are increasing, if you are providing for them, if you are treating these things like plants in a garden and you aren't forcing them to grow, right? You're not going through all the cellular stuff. But if you are supplying the water and the nutrients and the stuff that these things need to grow, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this knowledge of Jesus Christ isn't a salvation thing. You know, we can know Jesus for salvation, but we may not know him in our lives. We may not have an intimacy with him. We, we may know about him in terms of he's our savior, but if you are someone who just got saved and just kind of like sat in a pew and just kept kind of living your life according to your own will, your own desires, you're going to get to heaven. And the only thing you're going to know about Jesus is that he saved you, that you placed your faith in him one day when God called you. But otherwise, there's not a whole lot, you know, about this savior guy that you're now going to spend eternity with. But if you are growing in these things, then in this life today, you're going to be able to live the life that God calls you to. God doesn't call you to success. God doesn't call you to happiness. 
God calls you to be useful and fruitful in your own life, but also for the will of God as your life then reaches outwards into the world for serving others, for telling others the gospel, for growing a family. God has you in this life, in this moment, for a reason. If God didn't have a purpose for you, there's no point in you being here. You know, you're, you're not some afterthought of God. God saved you with a purpose. He allows you to be alive now for a purpose. The question is, with all that God has given you, with all the supplies that he has, with, with how the Holy Spirit has planted seeds in your heart, if you will, in your life, are you going to nurture those things so that they can grow and you can live how God's called you to live in whatever setting you're in? Or are you going to be useless? Are you going to be unfruitful? Are you going to choke out the work of the Spirit in your life because you are supplying you know, Pepsi instead of water. You're throwing rocks in your garden instead of giving it the nutrients it needs. Your health, your life in Jesus Christ today while you're still breathing is not a matter of your own strength. It's a matter of your obedience. Will you surrender your time? Will you surrender your desires, your life, Will you surrender these things to God so that you can set aside all the worldliness you desire, all the sin that seems so appealing, so that you can stop trying to find your identity in the things of the world or in what you're told you should do, and instead supply for these things and find your identity in Jesus Christ so that you can live not for yourself, but for Jesus Christ. The way to check that is to look at what Peter's talking about here. It's not a matter of, are you good enough at these things? But are you, what are you doing in your life to provide for them? You know, I've just given a few examples of ways that you can provide for these things. But as I was meditating on this and as I was dwelling on it and examining my own life, I found plenty of ways that I am just not only not supplying for them, but doing things that are working in direct contradiction to growing in things like brotherly kindness or love or self-control. What are we going to do? What are, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep choking out the growth of the spirit in your life? Are you going to let the fruit of the spirit just remain these little shriveled things? Or are you going to provide what God has given you? Are you going to be a good steward and give them what they need to thrive in your own life. Through the divine inspiration of what Peter wrote here in 2 Peter, that is what God wants us to see. That word supply, it, it hung me up. Like I said at the beginning, I was really questioning everything that I thought I understood. But in understanding that that supply word is better, isn't someone who does all the work themselves, but instead gives, gives their support, right? Gives nourishment and sustenance to, in the context, a group of actors so that they can do the thing that they're meant to do. That didn't just confirm what I'd always understood about the Christian life. It broke down a lot of what I was doing, even in understanding it correctly already. This challenged me to really examine my life, to let go of the things that were distracting me, but also to embrace things that would then 
grow, nourish, support the work of God in my life. You know, I, I don't want to, to mix metaphors here, but in the past, if you've been around here long enough, you know that I like to explain this like kindling, right? As people of God, we, as we read God's word, as we pray, as we spend time with others, as we read books, as we listen to podcasts, as we uh, attend church and listen to sermons, as we maybe listen to sermons outside of our church walls and do all this stuff, as we expose ourselves to all things that are godly, we aren't doing that so that we can figure out the trick to be better people. We are instead piling kindling around ourselves, right? We are providing fuel, but without the Holy Spirit, those things are just going to sit there. It's just going to be a hoarding of knowledge, but it is God through the Holy Spirit who, who ignites that spark that gives us that burning desire to live for him, to love him, to surrender everything to him. That's what I've always understood. That's what I was getting a little concerned about. But that is also in my own study, and I hope in now your study of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. I hope that you've seen that that is what God truly calls us to, and that we need to take it seriously. The life of a Christian is not a hobby. It's not a part of who we are. It's all that we are. And we want to be fruitful. We want to be productive. We want to be useful to God in these things. And that's only going to happen if we provide for them. Because if we don't, Peter goes on to tell us what that is going to look like as well. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, he says, it's kind of a counterpoint to what he just said about for those who where these things are growing. He now says, for in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the kingdom of heaven of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. If this is not present in your life, that does not mean that you are losing your salvation. But what it does mean is that you're blind. You have completely forgotten what Jesus Christ did for you on that day where the Holy Spirit renewed you, where you called out for salvation, where you recognized your sin before a holy God and your inability to save yourself, that you had made yourself an enemy of God by all those things that you wanted to do in your own power and your own understanding. To continue living this life as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a temple for the Holy Spirit, to keep living this life chasing after worldliness, to starve, to quench the spirit in your life, you're blind. You have completely forgotten how horrible your sin is, how much you need Jesus Christ. You have forgotten who you really are. So don't slack on this. Like verse 10 says, be all the more diligent. Understanding that, don't just, you may have been diligent before, but really understanding this, be even more so. Double your diligence. Make this your passion. Make this your life's goal because this is your life. 
follow God, obey God, live the life that God has called you to. Because Jesus Christ is the one who supplied our entrance into heaven. We have the guarantee of an eternity with our Savior. Eternal life, abundant life. The question isn't, how hard are you going to work to prove yourself to God? Today, understanding what Peter's talking about here, ask yourself, what are you going to do because of what Jesus Christ has already done? Whose life are you going to live? What kind of life are you going to support? What kind of garden are you trying to grow today? Now, I hope that's been helpful and even enlightening for you to see kind of the process that I go through, the thinking that I go through, the uh, the mini sermon that I just preached isn't something that I'm just throwing at you. That is honestly a lot of just what I had to say to myself is I was going through all these different things that I need to supply, that I need to water and and nurture so that God will grow them in me. So any amount of beating up you feel I did to you. I am already bruised from, trust me. But I hope that's been valuable. I hope that's been helpful. I hope it's given you a drive to understand that context matters, that words matter, that some things that seem clear when we first read them, especially if they aren't lining up with our other understandings, because God's word is always true, there is an answer. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's not. But to close this out, I will just remind you that, uh, if Onward in the Faith is valuable to you, if you see that this ministry is worth supporting, I hope that you will consider doing so. Um, you can do so monetarily every month by going to patreon.com slash Onward in the Faith and just pledging as little as a buck a month, uh, because honestly, every little bit truly does help and it is truly appreciated. So with all that being said, keep supplying for the growth of God in your life, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com, where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ.